You can't be all in on training and all in on performance climbing. That's a mistake a lot of people make is they are trying to do both at the same time. And that sets you up for overtraining. It sets you up for not climbing your best when you are going outside and it can get you injured. Hey y'all, I'm Ryan Devlin and welcome to the Struggle Climbing Show where I talk with elite climbers about their struggles and breakthroughs in training, nutrition, tactics, and mental game, and also what they're passionate about beyond the fight with gravity. Now today, I'm coming at you with a crossover episode that I am incredibly psyched about, and I think you're going to gain a lot from it as well. My friend Eric Hurst, who I'm sure you all know as the host of the Training for Climbing podcast, author of numerous amazing climbing Bibles, pro coach for decades now, founder of Fizzy Vantage Nutrition, and all-around crusher in his own right, Eric reached out to me with a super fun idea that he's calling The Road to 13A. As you all know, if you've been listening for a little bit here, I recently climbed my highest grade, which was a 12D in the Red River Gorge, and I'm now setting my sights on 13A. And Eric and I have climbed a bit together at the Red over the past six months, and I've been asking his advice on this goal. Which route should I pick? How should I train for it? Should I project every time I go out to the Red or work in smaller goals? That kind of thing. Eric's been coaching elite athletes and weekend warriors for decades now, every level from 5'9 to 5'14, and today he brings a really unique experience to this conversation, looking at my climbing journey, but one that will certainly apply to your climbing journey as well. In this conversation, we're covering everything from how to choose a route based on a self-assessment of strengths and weaknesses, taking a 30,000-foot view of planning training and performance seasons, using smaller goals to elevate her up into the big proj, how to train in-season as well as off-season, and then we end with a little side goal that Eric recommends for all climbers at all levels that is guaranteed to help you level up your red point grade. All right, I'm super psyched for this one. Let's get into it. I hope you all enjoy this chat with the GOAT coach himself, Eric Hurst. All right, Eric, we are rolling here. Um, levels look good. Everything looks good. It's good to see you. I'm so glad we're doing this. Thanks for coming up with this idea. And, you know, we're we're both podcast hosts here, but I'm going to let you drive this bus. It might be a struggle bus. It might be a training for climbing bus, but I'm going to let you drive it. What, what are your thoughts here? How, how should we tackle this thing? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess just, uh, you know, the idea that you are open to suggestions. You know, a lot of climbers have their mind made up, like, this is the route I'm going to project. This is what it's going to take to get there. And, and some people can suss that out pretty well, but many people can't. It helps to have that outside perspective from a coach, a climbing partner, some friends, you know, the people you climb with most often. What they see when you climb is different than what you perceive sometimes. And so me having climbed with you a fair amount over the last six months, I have some fresh you know, data, you know, firsthand data of how you move over stone. Uh, so that's important. And then of course we can talk about things that can happen in the gym to help you on your journey because it's gotta be a comprehensive effort. You, you, you just can't do one thing like, okay, fingerboarding is gonna get me to that to that goal. Climbing is a complex sport, which makes it hard to figure out sometimes. A lot of climbers I talk to and hear from say that they're just overwhelmed by confusion because 
they feel like there's so many things they could work on and they listen to all these podcasts and videos and it's kind of like almost TMI for them. And uh, so to have a, a coach, somebody that can help you focus your, your thoughts, your efforts, your training, and kind of develop a strategy. And so that's what we're gonna try to do here in the podcast is what do you need to do to help expedite the journey to 13A? Because, you know, Ryan, I know you just sent your first 12D and 13A can be a big jump. Yeah. And yeah. that's a jump that some people could take a couple of years to make and other people might do it in a few weeks. You know, it really depends on where you're climbing and who you are, but I think it's a, a significant jump for most climbers to go from their first 12D, which you just did you know, a couple of months ago, to the first 13A, which you have set the goal to achieve before the end of the year. Yeah, that's right. Well, I'm, I'm open to the journey, right? I'm having a blast out there on 12Bs and 11Bs and, you know, and 12Ds. And so more so than just chasing the grade, I want to make sure that it's a, a fulfilling and exciting and enjoyable journey. Uh, as I'm 43 years old, will be 44 this summer. Uh, I don't like the idea of being miserable for a year just so I can tick like a certain grade. So I, you know, having it be a, an exciting journey, a challenging one, and if the outcome is the grade, then that's awesome. I think, as you know, my goal for last fall was 13A. I didn't find a 13A that was inspiring, so then I settled on Jesus Wep, and. I'm so glad that I did because that was a route that mm -hmm. I spent a ton of time on. As you noted, it took me some goes, but every time I got on it, I was so happy. I was so excited The the movement, the challenge, the location, the people that hung out at Sanctuary. It was such mm -hmm. a great experience that though I didn't achieve my kind of quote unquote goal of 13A going into the season, I still pushed my top end grade. Um, but I also learned a lot and, and grew a lot as a climber. So I think I learned enough through that process that now as we look at 13A, which is the goal now, the goal for the fall or maybe whenever it can come is 13A. I learned a lot in the Jesus Wept uh, struggle that if it doesn't come quickly, I'm going to be okay with that as long as it's a project that I'm psyched on. Yeah. Uh, so let me jump in here and just make a few comments on what you just covered there. I was around quite a bit of the time you were working on Jesus Wept. We crossed paths uh, at the Red last fall, last winter. We climbed together a few days. Uh, I think I might have even, even belayed you on Jesus Wept perhaps a couple of times. You did. And I know how many days you made that slog, you know, from the parking lot down the Stairmaster <laughs> to the crag and then back out without the Seine. And that's something that I think all sport climbers can relate to is that the, the effort and um, I guess the patience that is often required. And, and one thing that throughout that journey I was telling you is maybe you need a break from this project or maybe you need to clip some chains on some easier routes because you were kind of, you'd park your car and it was off for Jesus wept. And, yeah. and I respect the dedication and you kind of, I think deep down knew it was gonna happen. So you just had to kind of punch the clock and show up and uh, go through the process and, and it would happen. And good for you, it did. But having achieved that, I think it would be a mistake here in spring, you know, March, 2023, to immediately jump on and put that same amount of focus into a 13A where you mm -hmm. were just kind of focused on that 
and started punching the clock on that. And maybe there's a low-hanging fruit kind of 13A out there that you would knock off quick, maybe. Um, but maybe not. Maybe you're signing up for another three, four, five-month journey to send the route. And I think you would be better served by investing at least part of the spring season into just climbing some maximal routes, you know, routes that challenge you. So I'm thinking, Ryan, you know, climbing 12A, 12B, maybe a couple of 12Cs, building out that pyramid that climbing coaches we often talk about, uh, you want to build a pyramid of experience, a pyramid of success, not a skyscraper. And so if the, if the top of the pyramid, if, you're, if you want to put in that 13A block at the pinnacle of the pyramid to set you up to best do that, you want to build, you know, a row of a half a dozen 12As and 12Bs and a couple of 12Cs and, and maybe a 12D and then set that block, that 13A on top, as opposed to a skyscraper where you might just send one 12A, one 12B, one 12C, one 12D, and then try to go to the 13A. Climbers have done that uh, with intense focus, but it's not the most fun process and it's definitely not the process that makes you the better climber. The better mm -hmm. climber is you know, uh, about, about developing a broad skill set that comes about by sending a lot of routes. And so right now, um, let me just ask you and the listeners I think could benefit from hearing Roughly how many 12A, 12B, 12C, 12D routes have you sent? Just to get a sense of your pyramid right now. Yeah, for sure. 12A, I don't know because that's the biggest, the base of that pyramid. And I would say it's probably somewhere in the 12, you know, I don't know, 10 to 15 range, I, I okay. would say. But then the pyramid narrows pretty quickly. So I've done 312B, 112C, 112D. So the A's for me can go pretty quickly. I can usually do a 12A in a session. Um, I haven't found lately, at least, many 12As where I'm, I'm going back multiple times, but that changes pretty quickly for the B. As, as you know, I put in a few days on Sex Farm before that went, and that's my first 12B of this season. Last season was um, Mercy the Huff, which was a huge project for me. That was many days on Mercy, and um, Tissue Tiger was my first 12B at Military Wall, and that was a uh, uh, I don't know, probably four or five sessions as well. I think now with my fitness getting to be where it's at, I can probably start to put down 12Bs in a couple sessions, I would guess. Yeah. I don't know if there are many 12Bs out there that I could put down in one session. It would have to really suit my style. Mm -hmm. um, and then same with 12Cs, maybe a couple more sessions than that. Uh, maybe, you know, I might be looking at three, four sessions, depending on the only 12C I've done was Mosaic, which is, I felt was far easier than... Mercy the Huff, for example. Uh, so it really kind of can depend on style as well. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. So um, I think from what you just told me, this spring, I I would recommend you setting the goal to see how many 12B and 12Cs you can tick off in short order, being in two days or three sessions. Um, I, I know currently you're trying to get to the red uh, twice a week. So if we look at you know, I mean, in terms of the weather being reasonable, uh, it gets quite hot and humid by the end of May. You know, as you get into the summer season, it's not ideal for climbing at your limit or near your limit. So let's just talk about, you know, April and May, kind of an eight-week period here. Uh, if you got out twice a week, that's 16 sessions, and 16 sessions 
you know, maybe you could do four or five or six routes in that kind of mid-range 12 range, you know, 512B, 512C range. And if there is a nice 12A, maybe you knock it off second go. Maybe you, you know, maybe you on-site a 12A. Um, and that's something I want to circle back to in a minute. The thought of of putting together five or six kind of mid-12s is pretty awesome. I mean, I think I'd have A, have a lot of fun, and B, I would definitely feel like strong and confident heading into the summer season. How much, maybe I'm jumping ahead here, but I'm also wondering on some of those outings, um, if I'm also sussing out potential 13As so that I, I know what to train for, or you know, should I be climbing 12Bs that might emulate the style or the angle of a 13A I might want to do, or am I overthinking it? No, no, you're not overthinking it. In fact, I was going to go right to that t topic Great. Uh, in terms of if you can settle in on, uh, let's say in the next couple of weeks, what that 13A project will be this fall. Uh, if you could settle in on that, and I know you've started to do a little exploratory research you know, on a couple of 13s uh, to, to figure that out. But once you have figured it out, absolutely, you know, finding some 12B, 12C routes that are of similar style and length, you know, the skill set being similar, I, I think that would be valuable uh, training, you know, kind of training at the crag approach. And so this spring season, I think I mentioned earlier, there's kind of three phases to your journey to 13A, you know, and so the first phase is the next couple of months, the spring season, let's call it the foundational phase. So you're going to try to build out the pyramid. You're going to try to do a handful of routes in the 12B, 12C range. Uh, you're going to find your project. You're going to shop and find the project. Do not invest a lot of time into it, but maybe dabble on it once a month just to start the learning process and start getting familiar on it. And since this spring season, you know, when the weather's good, I would not encourage you to do an excessive amount of training at home or at the gym, but try to get out those two days and have really good sessions, productive sessions at the crag. And then if you get, if you fill in with a workout or two at home during the week, that would be great. And we can talk about what you would do later on or even offline. But uh, this foundational block is really now through the end of May. And then June, July, and August, that hot, humid, buggy season at the red uh, where it's not ideal for climbing your best. I often tell climbers that as much as you might want to climb outside in the summer, if the conditions are that bad, if it's tropical, which it can be at the red, why not just train in an air-conditioned gym and you can be so much more effective in the use of your time? Right. Uh, you know, and that's, and that's even pushing into September and sometimes even October. It, it, it could it could be. And, uh, you know, and so you have to think, especially for a busy person, you know, a, a climber like yourself in midlife with a family, a couple of jobs, uh, you know, other obligations. There's only so many hours you can invest into climbing in a week. And so, you know, you have a two hour drive each way just to get to the red. Mm. You know, you're day tripping it usually. So you could go to the gym and in three hours have a incredible workout that would be better than what you get at the humid crag in the summer. So we have the foundational block in the spring, the, the summer block, let's call it the training block, because I think your goal during June, July, August, maybe early September is more about 
you know, improving your weaknesses, which I think are more physical than other, which we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, so you have that training block, and then that third, the third stop or phase on the road to 513A is the send phase, the send season, which of course, you know, anybody who climbs at the red knows it's more October, November, maybe even early December uh, as of late. So, Absolutely. you know, those are the three, those are the kind of three phases of your journey to 13A. And so right now you're heading into the heart of this foundational phase, the spring phase, where goal number one is to broaden that pyramid. Goal number two is to project shop, you know, find that project and settle in on it so you can kind of get focused and start to build momentum and then dabble in training, a appropriate training for you that targets your weaknesses. You get to the red twice a week right now in the spring. Well, the red by its nature is more endurance and less bouldery. So that one day in the gym actually should probably be more bouldery in nature, more strength power in nature. Or if you're training at home one day, you know, a hangboard workout that is, you know, more strength oriented or sure. other exercises like weighted pull-ups and things that, you know, aren't just mimicking what's going on at the red, but the, the energy systems and movements you're missing at the red, which again, you could probably benefit from some strength and power. Uh, you know, summer, that summer training block, the training can be a lot more extensive, especially if you're giving up a day of climbing at the crag. Maybe right. you just go one day in the summer because of the weather situation, but then you can spend two or even three days in the gym. Yeah. And for me, you know, it's, it's also kind of depends on work. And so sometimes it's one day a week, even during peak season. So I'll, I'll backfill and I'll do another sport climbing day at the gym uh, if I can't get out to the red twice. But, but a question about the spring, as you're talking about kind of the spring foundation building phase, it, with regard to my training, how important is it that I'm fully primed and rested and peaking to get out there and try that 12B or that 12C, which will take me a maximal amount of effort, I'm assuming, because yeah. my tactics won't be dialed on it since, since I won't have had 10 days on the route, um, versus maybe not being at 100% when I go out so that I can get that extra training day in maybe the day before or two days before. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's, that's an important consideration. And that's one that I struggle with uh, and a lot of climbers struggle with. I, I talk to my sons a lot about that, this whole idea of, you know, if you want to arrive at the crag 100% fresh uh, to, you know, climb your best, you know, on-site, a hard route or you know, send up a mini project you're working on or whatnot. In your case, the 12 BCs that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Well, then, you know, it would be counterproductive to do a hard workout the day before you go to the crack uh, and maybe even two days before, because especially for older people, but also some younger people, it can take 48 hours or more, you know, to fully recover uh, from a hard workout. So if you want to climb your best, then you have to kind of save yourself and not do a lot of rigorous training in the days leading up to that. Uh, but then if you're always saving yourself, you can actually backtrack in physical ability a little bit. You know, mm -hmm. if you're always saving yourself for, you know, if you're climbing one day on, two days off, one day on, two days off, you, you know, a lot of climbers are gonna backtrack, at least in the strength and power in, in that sure. situation. 
Um, it can be really good on Sunday because you're fresh, but you might actually be sliding backwards. And so, yes, that's a fine line to walk. And I think if you're, if you know you're going to the red on a given day, I think the the day prior you should definitely not be training for climbing. You you could go for a jog, you could do flexibility work, you could do some mobility work, you know, things that are not stressful on the neuromuscular system uh, and creating a lot of fatigue. So I think you want to always be trying to plan seven days ahead as best as you can. You know, look at that seven-day weather forecast and pick out, okay, this week it looks like it could be Tuesday and Friday. that are the best two days for you to make that trip to the red. And so once you've kind of settled in on Tuesday and Friday, then you're like, okay, well, you know, I could uh, do a workout at the gym on Saturday. Uh, you know, training two days in a row is a helpful thing to do sometimes. And you have to kind of piece together how you would go about the training week or the training and climbing week. Got it. Uh, I think in the, in the summer, I think it gets easier because your goal is not peak performance. If it's, you know, 90 degrees with 70% humidity, that's not a peak performance kind of day for most people at, at the red or anywhere. And right. so if you do a workout the day before you go to the red to climb some 12A in the shade, who cares if you're not quite fresh when you get there? Uh, but here in the spring where you really you know, want to accumulate some sends, build that pyramid, create some momentum forward, I, I think you, you want to be well rested when you arrive. And then obviously in the fall season, same thing. When you start to work on that project, uh, especially when you feel like you're getting close to the send, you want to show up fresh um, and physically ready you know, to give it your best. Love that. That's great. I, I like how we're breaking it down in the seasons as well here. And of course, this this assumes a peak in late fall. And so having that long lens for me is really important too, because I can I can really start to wrap my head around family vacations and just how I'm going to like essentially schedule some of my training and that kind of thing. That's huge, right? I, I, I think it's so important to kind of have that 35,000 foot view of your climbing season and your how you're training you know, your family life or job or school uh, and is going to dovetail into your climbing. A lot of people listening can relate to that, the complexity of taking their passion for climbing and their desire to invest time into training, but yet also be able to still function well at school, uh, to excel at work, you know, to be a good parent. Uh, I, I think one thing I love about climbers is they they tend to be ambitious people. The people you run into at the crags or the gym, if they were lazy people, they'd be at home watching TV and drinking beer. But instead, they're at the climbing gym after working a 10-hour day. And, uh, you know, that's a pretty cool thing. I think in the DNA of a lot of climbers, including you and me, you know, to be that kind of busy person. But to do it well, you need to plan. And to, of course, as a climber, this rigorous sport, to stay uninjured means that you have to really be a planner, you know, in terms of the workouts, the rest days, and then of course, nutrition, which I don't think we'll have time to really go there today, but that, you know, nutrition and recovery, you know, that's kind of the other side of the training and climbing coin. You know, if you really want to do your best and hopefully resist injury, you need to be, you're kind of hitting all those bases. For sure. And for me, you know, we don't have to go down the rabbit hole of it, but for me, I feel like I'm fairly dialed on the nutrition side. Had that great conversation with Amity Warm recently yeah. on the pod. Talked a lot through nutrition programming. And 
it's really just a matter, I think, for me is uh, the, the big thing I'll focus on is just not letting myself go too much over the summer so that it's not too much uh, of a yeah. battle to get into yeah. fighting weight and fighting shape, yeah. you know, come fall send season as, uh, you know, summer comes around and you go to a lot of barbecues and that kind of thing. It's it's easy to get um, distracted by the siren song of beer and uh, donuts and these kinds of things. But other than that, I think I take good care of myself. Yeah. And I and I agree with that. I mean, I just climbed with you a couple of weeks ago. And I mean, you look like you're in terrific shape to me. You know, for listeners who haven't been to the Red River Gorge, you know, the typical route at the Red is past overhanging. The typical route at the Red, you lower off and you're out from the wall 10 or 20 or 50 feet, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and so on those types of routes, uh, you know, body weight is a very real factor. Uh, you know, when you're climbing slabs, when you're standing on your feet, climbing technique and the ability to put more weight on your feet than on your hands, it's a very forgiving thing for being overweight uh, or, you know, running a little heavy. But you get on those steep routes and the longer and steeper they are, the more that strength to power ratio, those things just uh, become more and more important because, you know, the long endurance routes, you're hauling weight up the route. And there are so many sports where it's the same thing. You know, marathon runners or bike racers, they try to shave off ounces off their shoes and off their bikes because when you have to carry that extra weight for a marathon or on a leg of the Tour de France every single day, moving that extra weight, you know, from point A to point B or from the ground to the anchors, it's 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 a factor. It's part of the formula. It's not everything. And again, climbing is complex. So there's a myriad of things we can talk about that contribute to climbing performance. But at a steep overhanging crag, to show up to your project, to your send season, five or 10 pounds above your fighting weight would be not a good thing. Yeah. And those um, tend to be the routes that I'm attracted to as well, which um, again, as you noted very well for, for listeners who don't climb at the red, uh, the style is very much overhung. You do get some vert techier stuff here, but for the most part, everything is in these cliffs is is going to be overhung to some degree. And then I personally tend to gravitate towards the steeper, longer routes because as a strength to weight ratio sport, my strength, as in my finger strength, is pretty low. And we'll probably talk about how this plays into my training here, but um, I'm not a very strong boulderer. I'm, you know, at the gym, maybe V5s is kind of where I top out. And I'm trying to climb 13A. So in terms of finger strength, how much can I hang on a 20 mil edge and that kind of thing? I'm going to be left of the average on the bell curve any day. But I'm, I'm pretty darn good with the endurance. I can hang on to bigger holds, juggier type holds for, mm -hmm. for quite some time. I've got some pretty good technique. All of it needs to be worked on. You've seen me climb. Like I need to get my hips closer to the wall and these kinds of things I need to work on. But I tend to also really enjoy those routes. So I could improve my ratio by improving my strength, by making sure I'm in fighting weight, and also just making sure my fitness is dialed in. But also finding a route, like a 13A route that really suits, gives me the best chance of actually sending, right, in, in the fall. And there's a lot of different 13As and we talked about during this foundation phase, the spring here of building the foundation, mostly 12 Bs and Cs, but also trying to identify that project so that I can make sure I pick those 12 Bs and Cs. So to your point, they're a similar style and angle, and also maybe 
check in on that goal, that target project, that 13A, every once in a while just to figure out some movement so I can train to that. So I assume fairly soon here, maybe in the next few weeks, I should try to identify that 13A. And I would love your thoughts on that. I mean, I've got some thoughts, but you know a lot more about the routes than I do. And yeah. really just understanding how I should go about that process would be helpful. Yeah. So let's let's talk some specific routes. And you know, for listeners who are familiar with the Red River Gorge, you're going to recognize some of these route names and maybe you've done some of these routes. And uh, maybe after the podcast, you want to message Ryan with your suggestion. Uh, Please do. Get some viewer input here and develop a bit of a consensus. But you have a range of possibilities. I, I've been thinking about this for a couple of weeks since we first had this conversation of the, the road to 13A for you. And if you wanted to do something a little bit different than typical Red River Gorge 513A climbing, there's a short 513A called Maisie May at drive-by. I happened to just do it a couple of weeks ago, so I know it for- I just saw that video. Yeah. And it's basically a bolted boulder problem. It's three bolts long. It's kind of the first pitch section of a supercharger, a 13D. Um, I, I guess it pre-existed supercharger as a route of its own originally. And I think for a, a young, strong boulderer, age 20, let's say, uh, it's probably a pretty quick 13A to send because you have to do essentially a three move V6 plus or something like that. Now, I'm not a boulderer, you know, and you aren't, aren't huge on the bouldering thing either. You know, you're kind of more like me in terms of being a route climber that maybe has a, a weakness in doing hard boulders. That's definitely my personal weakness. Uh, and so, you know, if you got on a route like Maisie May, uh, it would feel really hard. That boulder move would feel really hard. But if you could find a way to make it fit for your body, and there's a few different ways to do the crux, it could be a relatively quick 13A to send. But again, it's very bouldery and kind of anti-Red River Gorge style. The, yeah. other, the other end of the spectrum, of course, would be a 13A like Taste the Rainbow uh, at Shady Grove, where uh, there's no move on that route over maybe V3 or easy V4, uh, but it's 100 feet long. It overhangs, I don't know, what, 15, 20 feet or more. Uh, it's a classic endurance route, though it does have a couple of good rests on it. So, uh, and I've done that route also, and it's kind of a 30 foot 512B to a, a bit of a rest, and then another like 30 foot 12A to a rest, um, and then a, kind of a, another 30 foot 12A pumpy endurance run to the anchors. Uh, and so you, you get to check a 13A by climbing basically three 512s in that mm -hmm. AB range, which we know, you, you know, that's right in your wheelhouse, those, that, that type of route and that you know, grade range. And so Taste the Rainbow is a route that I really thought is a good fit for you uh, because it is your, quote, style, as opposed to Maisie May, the, the bouldery three bolt <laughs> 13A right. would be kind of the anti-style. So, you know, there could be some benefit in either one of them, but I think, you know, maybe the Taste of the Rainbow could instinctively be a, a better pick. Well, and it's a cool it's a cool line too. Sorry, just to, to kind of comment on um, Taste. And I have been on Taste, but I haven't been to the chains. I, I went up to like kind of the second stand-up rest and it was hard. It was very hard. I, I think your assessment is right. Uh, that, But that 12B kind of lower part, 
definitely puts it on you. So even though you're laying down there, um, you know, you're, you're fighting the pump clock, but it's also such an aesthetic line. Like what I love about that is when you walk into Shady Grove, you see Taste the Rainbow. It's a king line in that crag. It's so yeah. cool looking. So I am drawn to that route. It's so long that I need to find somebody who's psyched on that area, uh, whether it's Purgatory or Shady or something that's kind of right there. But I am drawn to that. I, I saw the video of you doing Maisie, and I'd like to check that out. I've got some friends who are projecting at Drive-By. And so it would be easy, an easy day for me to go over there and maybe do some of the 12s over there that I haven't done. You know, Hakuna Matata, and there's a few over there that I haven't done that that would build my foundation. But then I could also go put a a quick burn on Maisie just to feel it, just to feel the holds and see if it's something that would be fun to train for. So I actually, I think both of those are fantastic and very different suggestions. Would love to hear what else you have in mind. And I got on a 13A yesterday that maybe will come up in your list. And if not, I'll I'll share it with you because I thought it was pretty rad. Okay. Well, yeah, a few more. So between those two extremes, there's a, I mean, the Red River Gorge has so many great routes in that, you know, 513A, <laughs> you know, range. But some of the ones that come to mind that could be uh, a good pick, a spank at uh, drive-by. Right. Which is more on the bouldery side, but it's it's uh, not V6, that's for sure. It's maybe V4 to maybe close to V5, but it's steep. It's got a, 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 a challenging clip that you need to make. I think the second to last or third to last bolt is a very challenging clip, but if you get the knee tech down and kind of get a, have a pad on and learn how to set your hips and your knee, you can make the clip. And, uh, you know, so Spank is, is an interesting one. It climbs on bigger holds, uh, so it's not so crimpy. Um, Snooker at uh, the Motherlode is a fantastic 13A. It's a lot of people's first five 13As. I, I know that because I've had people tell me over the years, you know, it was their first route. It looks great. Yeah, Convicted is another one at, at Undertow Wall at Motherlode. Uh, it is uh, kind of a bouldery route with rests in between. So it's been a few years since I did that. You know, the boulders might be V4, V5, but you do get to shake out, not sit down, <laughs> certainly, but you do get better holds to shake out on between the boulders. And I second goad it because it was kind of once I did the boulders, I, I knew how to do the route, you know? And so it was just a matter of utilizing those rests. Um, you say, and you then, second go everything though, Eric. That's, <laughs> that's, that's your, your superpower is like this guy for listeners who don't know. I mean, I've climbed it up with Eric where like he, he'll work his way up something. He'll, he'll hang at every bolt. You'll be like, oh, this will be a project. And then he'll just float the thing second go. So that speaks to the experience and the strength, of course. <laughs> But Convicted looks really cool. It does. And I was going to say one more route since you did Jesus Wept this past winter, you know, right next to it is Prometheus, which is world class. You know, it's every bit as good as Jesus Wept. To me, it wasn't that much harder. I know some people think it is much harder, but to me, I thought it was like only a half a grade step up. You know, I thought Jesus Wept was kind of on the harder end of 12D and Prometheus kind of low to mid range 13A. So um, now, maybe you don't want to go back to the same crag and go have to deal with that Stairmaster over and over again out of Mere Valley, but um, I had to mention that because it is, it's a world-class 513A. I so. do like the look of that route, and and I am used to that angle. I'm used to that crag. I love Muir. I've got a pass, um, and the buddy that I was climbing Jesus Wept with, his season ended early for due to work reasons. Uh, so he wasn't able to put it down in the winter like I did, and I want to be able to support him. So we may very well spend some time back at Sanctuary, in which case I will happily hop on Prometheus because it go. looks super rad. 
and I am used to the, some of that kind of angle and, and movement. The, the, the one that comes to mind too for me, and I, I'd like to get your thoughts on this because it, it seems maybe, well, I haven't been on Prometheus, so I can't speak to it, but we went to Dark Side yesterday and I got on the Force and I thought that was a really cool route. And I, I did all but one move on it and um, bouldery, but then with some rests and just, I mean, the Dark Side is just like such a cool crag and i had actually gone over there to get on american dream which is a 12b and that was so hard and tweaky for me that my friends were like well why don't you hop on the force they were working on the force and i kind of discounted it at first and they were like no get on it and it just felt more natural and more intuitive yeah. to my style than the the thinner kind of um, more power endurancey american dream where i don't know if it could come together or not i don't know if it's a hard 13 or, or not but i was inspired by it and so that's a good yeah. place to start. And I think Prometheus might be similar where it just seems very inspiring, even though I haven't been on it. I f absolutely fell in love with Jesus. So yeah, I would like to get your thoughts on the force as well. And then also how, how I should tackle some of these, how I should, you know, how I should sample some of these. Yeah. Well, the force is one of the very best 13 A's at the red. It's just, it's world-class also. And, uh, you know, American dream, which is, you know, guidebook grade is 12 B, but it's sharp and it's got that hard boulder off the kind of that ramp. Yeah. Um, it's a little scary, you know, American dream, I think for most people feels really hard for 12 B and the force. Some people say is soft. I, I don't think so. Not for me. In fact, I, I fell when I did that route a decade ago, I think I fell, you know, on red point three or four times going to the chains, you know, just pumping out, uh, climbing on 511 plus to the chains. Uh, it's just, it's one of those routes at the red, you know, the hard yeah. climbing on the force is down around bolt three, bolt four. There's uh, a boulder problem through pockets. Uh, and then there's some physical moves, you know, bolt four to bolt five. But once you get to mid height, you hit big holds that if you're an experienced Red River Gorge climber, as you are, you get on the big holds, even though it's still overhanging, you get on big holds and you kind of know how to recover and move efficiently using trickery, you know, to gain uh, some recovery and have just enough for that 511 plus uh, anchor run, you know, the last two bolts to the chains where I've seen a lot of other people, not just me, punt on the, on the, on the force. Oh, I can uh, see that. I can see punting there for a year because it's, it thins out and the moves get just long enough where, yeah, you got to have enough in the tank there to just to just grit down and make it up to those chains. Yeah. If you can climb the first five bolts of the force, you're way through the hardest climbing. And then it's just a matter of hanging on to the chain. So that would be a good route. I would say, you know, that that that's a good route in the summer because um, the dark side has shade all day after 10 a.m. And also it's um, a, a crag that has texture to it. And some people call it the sharp side because it's the holds there can be quite sharp. Uh, and so in humid weather, it's actually one of those areas that you don't grease off as, as much as some other areas at the red. And so it wouldn't be a bad idea to go there um, a couple of times, you know, on a hot, humid day, you know, over the summer and uh, to, you know, put a little time in on the force and just see if you can get good beta for that lower boulder, you know, get it down to, you know, like a one or two hang quickly, then that might be a sign that that's your route. Uh, well, and so I, I think that's worth putting on the list, at least for the time being. Yeah, let's let's add it. And 
And now would love to get your thoughts on kind of the process here. So if my goal, let's say, is to have the 13A, and of course, there's nothing set in stone here. I can always change my mind. But if my goal in a perfect world is to have my 13A identified by, let's say, end of April, um, that allows me a, a few weeks now to get out, work on those 12 A, B, Cs, and sample some of these 13s that you noted. So is it just which one speaks to me and then just and then go? Or do you think I should identify a strength of mine and just say, okay, my best shot at climbing 13 is going to be one of these? Right, right. Well, I mean, they're, they're all great routes. I mean, I think the least great of all of these is the Maisie May, just because it's kind of short. It's a bolted boulder problem. Uh, you know, but it's it's a fun route if if that's your cup of tea. So, I mean, I don't think you can go wrong with any of these, but I think it helps the process along if the route really does inspire you, if it's really fun for you. You know, some people might get on the force and maybe that's not fun for whatever reason. You know, sure. there's some kind of weird movement on it. It's got these bowling ball kind of pockets that aren't for everybody. Some people that are used to crimping a lot, well, you have to do several moves in a row where you have your fingers in different Spock configurations, you know, like in, in a bowling ball. And some people that kind of freaks them out and they're not used to it or they're maybe they're not even strong in those positions. And right. So I think, you know, you got to make sure a route, you know, feels right to you. Uh, it doesn't feel injurious to you and inspires you. And so I, I think over the next month to get on a couple other 13 A's just to know what's out there, I think would be beneficial. And here's something I would do, Ryan, is... If you're heading out to, say, um, check out Convicted, well, right next to Convicted are a half a dozen you know, 12B kind of routes. AL81 and The Verdict and the 12C um, um, Resurrection. Uh, oh, yeah. You can go out with the intention to actually, okay, I'm going to see if I can do a one-day send of AL8 uh, or of The Verdict. And, you know, get your couple of two, three goes in on it, maybe send it. But if you don't, okay, well, convicted's right here. I'm going to go bolt to bolt on it. Uh, and so rather than invest a whole session on going bolt to bolt on a 13A, I would go out first and at the same crag, is there a good 12ABC that you could get on and maybe send or tee up to send the next day, the next time you come out? Um, and then get on the 13A, because it really doesn't matter. You can dabble, you can go bolt to bolt on the 13A with some level of fatigue. Right. Not extreme fatigue, but if you've done a couple of goes on a 12, you might have enough in the gas tank to then go bolt to bolt on the 13. Uh, you maybe take a stick clip up and clip through the hardest move. You know, you can still get a flavor for what the route has to offer. And so I think kind of planning in, in that way, you know, you go out to the forest and you can get on American Dream, uh, obviously, is there. Um, Maisie May or Spank, well, there's a, a number of 512s there that, you know, you can get on. There's the 12B just left of um, Check Your Grip that I, I doubt you've done. Which no, is I a haven't. Which is a decent route. So I'll try to I'll try to climb, do some climbs, and then also check out some projects. Mm -hmm. But But the goal here, right, Eric, if I'm right, is I'm going to try to identify the one, the one that I'm going for this spring so that I have that in mind all the way through the summer and into the fall. So I'm either training for it or finding a good enough day to go out and and do some beta burns, even if the conditions are suboptimal, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that's the strategy. Thinking about this next you know, nine months in those three phases. And so you're heading into this foundational phase. Keep your eye on the ball of what the goal is, and that is to build that foundation. 
you know, climb those 12A, 12B, 12C routes, as many as you can, and to project shop on the side and settle in on that project. And then the summer, we get into training uh, more specifically and less of a focus on outdoor climbing, uh, less of a focus on performance climbing, because, you know, you can't do both. You can't be all in on training and all in on performance climbing. That's a mistake a lot of people make is they are trying to do both at the same time. And that sets you up for overtraining. It sets you up for not climbing your best when you are going outside and it can get you injured. It's just not, not a good outcome and you can't cram when it comes to training. So if you're in performance season, you're kind of doing a little bit of maintenance training as it can fit in to the weekly schedule. But then in the summer, we're gonna have you more of on a training block for three months where if you can get out one day a week and climb in the shade, great, but your time is maybe better invested not driving to the crag to sweat for an afternoon, but to drive to the gym um, and get more turn on your investment of time. And then the fall, that third phase of the fall is the sun season. Now, one thing we haven't done, Ryan, and we need to do, because I'm a coach and I'm trying to always do an assessment of people. We didn't talk about kind of like your strengths and weaknesses, what's good and what's needs some work. Sure. And now I haven't done any fitness testing of you. I haven't done any grip strength testing and things like that, but I have a pretty well-trained coach's eye after all these years. And if I climb with somebody for a few days, like I've done with you, uh, you know, the last six months or a year, uh, I have a pretty good sense of where the person's at. And so let me first tell you what I think you are really strong at. Like what are Ryan Devlin's strengths? And definitely number one is I think your technique and your movement skills, at least at the Red River Gorge, because you know, you go to different climbing areas and there's a different skill set that needs sure. to be called on. So I'm speaking here about what I've seen with uh, you know, climbing with you at the red. And I mean, your, your movement skills, I think, are above average on efficiency compared to, you know, kind of the average climber walking around. Climbing technique, your ability to work routes, read routes. You know, I saw you send uh, that 12B sex farm, which I think was at your second or third session yeah, on. Just my third. Yeah, and so that's a challenging route. It's kind of bouldery and pumpy and to a large extent, a matter of being able to move efficiently enough that you just have enough gas in the tank to get to the chains on it. And so, you know, you put that together and send it quite quickly. So I think in terms of working routes and the strategy that's involved, kind of like a veteran at the game in those ways. Now, what needs work? You know, what do I see kind of as weaknesses? Well, you mentioned it earlier and you know it, kind of strength and power, you know, doing limit moves. A lot like me in terms of I'm an older climber and that's an aspect of my game that's waning, unfortunately, but there's not much I can do except put up a fight and try to compensate in other areas, uh, you know, and that's a beautiful thing about climbing is you can compensate in other areas, but you're a young man still <laughs> in your uh, early 40s. And uh, I appreciate that. <laughs> you know, and so uh, there's no reason in coming summer training season and in future seasons, I have no doubt you can take your strength and power to the next level um, and develop the confidence to exploit it on, on routes to, you know, sometimes, sometimes you can finesse your way through a hard move, uh, a big move by doing a bunch of intermediate little foot and hand movements efficiently. But sometimes 
the most efficient way to do it is just to huck, you know, and that, that was actually a tip I gave you, I think, on Sex Farm was there was a move there mid-height where you were trying to do three pocket moves. And I'm like, dude, you can just build your feet and, and huck to um, a big rounded jug, which yes. is the beta you ended up using then. So you need to become more comfortable in doing some of those kind of bigger moves where you kind of throw caution to the wind and just let her rip, you know, going for a hold. And the way you develop that is through bouldering. You know, that's the easiest way to develop it. And so, especially as we get into summer season, I think having at least one session a week where you go to the gym and don't take your harness and shoes, just go there to boulder or system wall. You know, you can do it on a home wall, that's fine, but it's also nice to get to a gym where there's set problems, graded problems, you kind of know um, you know, the difficulty of the routes you're getting on, as opposed to a home wall, it's kind of all, it's a, it's a homemade setup. And so, yeah, strength, power, big moves, uh, and then to be able to endure several of those in a row, a mm -hmm. sequence of those in a row. So that's what we're talking about, more power endurance. Obviously, climbing at the red a couple of days a week helps you build some of that, especially the aerobic aspects of it. But um, going to the gym this summer and doing some bouldering four by fours or getting on some routes that really elicit that anaerobic endurance energy system, you know, that lactic energy system and some specific exercises that I won't get into here. I think those are things that during that two or three month summer training block, we can help take you to the next level on. And that just makes everything that you try to do this fall that much easier. This is awesome. I love this because it really does bring a level of specificity, but also confidence to the training. And when you know that you're training for something specific, whether it's a route or a way to shore up weaknesses to then tackle a route, it makes motivation so much easier. You know, like it's just uh, it, it, the psych is higher when I know that I'm working hard towards a specific goal. And so if the goal over the summer, regardless of the route that I choose, and let's use like on an extreme side, taste the rainbow, and then on a, another extreme side, maybe convicted as kind of one is very long and endurancey and juggy, and one is you know quite short and, and bouldery. If I'm if the goal is to shore up my weaknesses over the summer, which so I'll be doing a lot of bouldering, and I have been working on the moonboard a little bit and trying to get more into that kind of powerful full body tension, snappy movement. At what point does it shift and then start to take more shape towards the project? So if Taste the Rainbow is the 110-foot, more juggy, kind of nothing harder than a V3 in there, um, versus Convicted, which is more bouldery, at what point is there a fork in the road and I start to maybe focus more on project-specific training? I would say not until like August or August into September. Okay. You Pretty know, late that, then. That you go there. That, that being said... You know, that summer training block where, you know, I would like to have you dedicate eight or 10 weeks to kind of strength and power and power endurance. So we're talking more that bouldery type of training um, and similar exercises and also some power endurance like bouldering four by fours or 30-30 intervals. We'll talk about protocols separately. We don't need to get into that granular detail here, but... When you're doing that for eight or 10 weeks, let's say June into July, you can't cease all endurance climbing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, route climbers 
like runners, need to do some degree of just base training year round. Like if you're a competitive runner, you just don't take a month off where you don't run unless you're injured. Because in a month off, in terms of your aerobic energy system, you know, mitochondria, you know, your capillarity, the enzymes, you will shrivel up. That aerobic, uh, you know, you lose aerobic capacity quickly with time off. And so as a route climber, that's the base for all performance. You know, mm. Climbing at the red is more aerobic than it is anaerobic. So you have to maintain. Uh, and so I, I think route climbers need to be on a rope or at least train in a way that really elicits that aerobic energy system pretty much year round. So even this summer, uh, let's say June and July, when you're doing your targeted strength and power training, one day a week, you have to either be going to the red in the humidity and climbing on shaded, you know, 510, 511, 512A. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't worry about projecting anything hard if the conditions are terrible. But to go there and do six or eight routes, you know, 510 to 12A, that's a great aerobic workout for you. Right. And, and, if, and if you don't go to the red, you go to the gym and do the same thing. Except in the gym, I might do... I might recommend you do a dozen routes between 5, 9, and 12A. And again, don't get bogged down on projecting in the gym. Go there and you want to be climbing, you know, with economy, you know, striving for fluidity, efficiency, you know, resting on big holds, climbing fast through small holds. Right. So you're always training technique and strategy and tactics, always. Uh, every time you go climbing, you should be doing that. But in terms of physiologically what's going on, you need one day a week year round where you're really calling on that aerobic energy system. And that's just to maintain it. That's not to build it. That's, to, that's so you don't lose, you don't go backwards. And so, you know, during that summer training block, you'll be doing say two sessions a week where you're power endurance type training on a system wall and using various exercises and tools uh, that are anything like route climbing. But then the one day a week, either at the crag or the gym, you will be doing some route climbing and it will be about submaximal volume route climbing, not, you know, projecting. Right. Uh, now, right now, your spring foundational season, because you're going to the red, you're, the goal is twice a week uh, to get on routes. Well, like I said, climbing on a rope at the red is very aerobic. So those are your two aerobic workouts a week. And obviously you're working other aspects as well. You know, some routes you do bouldery moves and some routes you get really pumped on and therefore they're anaerobic. Uh, and so there's a, a variety of things going on when you're climbing a lot at the red. And so if you do one training day in the spring, this foundational mode, that one training day should be something different. And so it would be a hangboard workout. It would be a bouldering workout something that works physiologically much different than those two days at the red. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think right now, naturally, that's kind of, that fits well with my life. If I'm gonna get out a couple days a week, the only thing I'm gonna have time for when I'm home is to do a max hang session or uh, maybe get a, a one hour like moonboard session in, but I'm not, I'm not really able to spend much more time doing that. Then in the summer, less time at the red, less time in the car commuting, I can do longer sessions at the gym and uh, longer training sessions at home. 
Should I also be in this off season? We'll do another one of these check-ins. Let's do another one of these check-ins in the fall to see kind of where I'm at and, and how things are mm-hmm. going. Cause I think that'll be, that'll be really nice. But um, one last question kind of on the training, we've talked a lot about climbing specific training in the summertime. Should I also be working in bench press, deadlift squats, anything, anything more full body, or should I continue to focus very heavily on that climbing as my training? Mm-hmm. I can't give you a definitive answer on that. I, I mean, there are some people that have a, a weakness or injury issue, let's say shoulders or something sure. that really requires some weightlifting. I don't perceive you as needing to do an excessive amount of weight training for any particular reason. Again, we, we spoke earlier about uh, at overhanging crags on overhanging projects, strength to weight ratio is a real important factor. And mm-hmm. so doing anything that would encourage packing on muscle, say in your glutes or your quads is counterproductive. You know, uh, stronger quads aren't gonna get you up your project. They might if your project is a slab, but if your project is basically anything at the red, uh, skinnier legs are, are better than more meaty legs. Right. There are people with meaty legs who climb really hard, but I'm just saying that it's, you know, why would you go there as a training goal, you know, to put mass on your lower body? Sure. It would not be prudent. It would be counterproductive. Uh, you know, you, you do hangboard training to increase your finger strength to weight ratio. But if you're doing a lot of lower body weightlifting and putting on pounds there, well, then you're adding mass and you're gaining nothing from the fingerboard training. Got you it. Know, it's, it's, a, it's a wash at best. Uh, and so... Every person's different, um, and this is where to really get into nitty-gritty details must be highly personalized. Uh, you know, when I work with somebody one-on-one, you know, we're taking into account so many factors, their past sporting history. I mean, obviously your genotype, what your genetics are. Some people can lift weights and don't put on any, on any weight at all because uh, they're not very fast twitch. And so they will get uh, neurological gains from weightlifting that translate into getting stronger without adding weight. Hmm. But then there's other people that have that strength power gene that if they just lift a weight once or they look at a weight, they, they bulk up. Right. Um, and if that's, if that's you, uh, which I don't know if it is, but if, if, if you have that gene you know, or something like that, then lifting weights can be quite counterproductive. Uh, again, uh, to dabble in some weight training during your off season, like I'm kind of a fan and what I do and what I've had my sons do and a lot of clients I work with is when they identify a definitive off season, you know, for some people it's the dead of winter if they live in a really cold location, I, I may have them do a block of weight training. And I do some body weight deadlifting one day a week just to maintain posterior chain strength. Mm-hmm. I find that valuable for my lower back health I, it's obviously somewhat beneficial for core strength. And so to dabble in a little bit of weight training is fine, but to get bogged down doing a lot of weight training that it consumes time and starts adding bulk onto your body, I think for many climbers, it's a counterproductive thing to do. And again, I'm not saying don't weight train. I'm just saying it needs to be personalized and appropriate. Sure, sure. No, I appreciate that. And I think for for me right. and, and my health, I, I do a little bit of bench or a little bit of deadlifts or like some kettlebells kind of because I've got a herniated disc in my lower back and it helps just Mm -hmm. shore up the core. And then of course, when you're climbing really steep, 
that core strength and that kind of that strength through that posterior chain, as you've done some really great podcasts on, you know, connecting the fingers to the toes can be incredibly beneficial to keep those hips closer to the wall. So especially if I pick a steeper route that's going into roof sections, you know, whether it's Taste the Rainbow or the Force, where you are lowering off 20 feet from where you pulled on, um, having that really engaged core, I think will will ultimately help to keep me efficient on the route as well. And sometimes I can feel when my hips are sagging away from the wall, you know, as you get tired and you pull into those steeper sections and something I need to be aware of. Yeah. So you know, kind of as a final comment, the use of weights, I think, uh, is valuable, but it's got to be done appropriately for a rock climber. You know, rock climber can't train like a crossfitter or like a power lifter or like a football player. Sure. You know, every sport has, you know, an ideal phenotype, body build, a physique. Um, in climbing, it tends to be a leaner physique, a higher strength to weight ratio. Uh, everybody has to kind of do the best with the DNA that they have. And the beauty of climbing is because there are so many facets to the game that you can excel with a wide range of body types. So that's a beautiful thing. Um, and so with rate, weight training, oftentimes a, a lot of people I work with, it's more just about maintaining antagonist muscle strength or maybe adding a little bit of antagonist muscle strength that doesn't directly aid performance, but helps with injury resistance, mm-hmm. you know, uh, sh- shoulder health, posture. It takes more than just bench press to, to do that. You know, you want to be doing things like some sling trainer with Y's, I's, and T's mm-hmm. and doing various exercises for your rotator cuff uh, strength. And so, you know, really trying to maintain health and stability uh, of your shoulders, you know, which are commonly injured. Uh, and so to just mindlessly bench press thinking that's going to be game changing is just a stupid thing, you know, right. obviously. I mean, a hangboard program, that can be game changing. Um, shoring up a, 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 an unstable shoulder that's on the road to injury, that can be a smart thing that can be game changing because it, it keeps you in the game right. if you don't get injured. Um, but joining a CrossFit gym or getting into a three day a week weightlifting program, it, it's just, it's a tangent you, you most climbers don't want to go on. So then that brings us to the, the application. So I'm going to dive in. I'll take the next couple of months here to build those A's, B's, and C's. And as soon as I can identify a project, I will let you know. And then I'll also talk about it on Instagram so that people following along will, will know where I'm at. And then in the fall, we'll check back in. Of course, you'll be out at the red and I'll be out at the red. So we'll probably get some climbs in as well. But also one of the pitfalls at the red, of course, is that the first time you're coming off of a summer of 90 degrees and 70% humidity, and then all of a sudden it's 65 or 70 degrees and you think it's send time, but really it's send time when it's 45 degrees, right? So it's like one of these pitfalls you can get sucked into is starting to try to red point the project maybe before the conditions are ready, even if you feel ready. You make a good point about temperature because temperature can be a very real factor when you're climbing at your limit, you know, and humidity, of course, as well, just what your skin conditions are and how sweaty you are and such. But depending what project you pick, you know, for example, Prometheus, well, you know, the sun situation there at the sanctuary, it bakes for much of the midday and you could be there on a 40 degree day in a t-shirt and you'd be a happy camper. So so that could be like a November, December send season uh, almost. On the other hand, the force could be unclimbable in December because it's shaded and uh, 40 degrees 
would be a really cold day there. I mean, people climb at the dark side in the 40s, but you have down coats on and you're maybe shivering and sure. at risk of numbing out. And so you might, you might send the force when it's 70 degrees out in September. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it really is going to depend on where the route is at and uh, you know, what the weather conditions need to be. But you don't need to figure that out yet. You have the next month or two to project shop and to settle in on uh, what you want that 13A to be. And by the way, one thing I, I want, wanted to mention that along with the goal of red pointing your first 13A, a, a very nice kind of companion goal to that is on sighting your first 12A. Mm -hmm. This is something I've been talking about for decades with two climbers I work with is there's this differential between what your on-site grade is and what your project grade is. And what it should be, you know, if you're the typical climber with a pretty high skill level and kind of even development of your game, mental, technical, physical, uh, if you're a well-developed climber in that way, which I think you are, the differential is about one number grade. So when you're out shopping for your first 13A red point, you should also kind of be shopping for your first 12A on-site. I know some people who have, you know, red pointed 13A and they, they can barely on-site 11A. And so that two number grade differential reveals to me a weakness in technical skills and tactical skills and mental skills. Sure. There's a reason there's a, this big differential. Uh, and so a sign of a better climber is a smaller differential. And even the pro climbers, you'll see that, you know, if you're a, if your hardest red point is 15A, well, then you're probably on sighting or at least have some 14As. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there's that one number differential. For me, my hardest in recent years, my hardest uh, red point is 13C. And on a really good day, I could on site a 12C though it's not always quite that high. And so that one number differential is something that all the listeners can ask themselves, where am I? And if your differential's two number grades between your on-site and red point, then there's some tactical mental weaknesses there that could be brought up and quickly, I think, gain in the on-site area. I love that. And I love also just having a secondary goal too, because just mentally, yes. you can get really dragged down just focusing on the project. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, you have to, you also have to be careful that you don't burn all those uh, great 12A on-site routes, you know, and throw them away on like getting on a certain route at the end of the day when right. you have really no good chance of, you only have one shot at an on-site, right? And, uh, and same thing, don't obviously, you know, watch a bunch of people climb it and accumulate all the beta in your brain if you want to save it for an on-site. And so it's great advice. It's it's such a fun goal. And in terms of kind of where I'm at, so my on-site, highest on-site is 11D. My highest red point is 12D. So I'm right in that one number grade Perfect. differential. Yeah. So I'm perfectly primed to go for the 12A. And that's something I haven't really done. And I think for me, um, as just a secondary goal, that's a really cool thing. It's a really cool thing to walk up to a route and say, all right, let's go. Like I've got one shot to give it 100%. Because on your red point, you know, you might do 20 sessions or 10 sessions or whatever it is. But but that that one on-site attempt, I really like, Eric. So I'm glad you highlighted that. Yeah. And it, and it is, I, I think, for listeners that are mostly prone to go out and project routes, you know, drop the rope, climb bolt to bolt, and just kind of work a route slowly and gradually like that. That's fine. I do, I, I do a lot of that. But 
there's a lot to be gained when you drop your rope at the base of something you've never touched before and have no data on other than the chalk on the route, let's say, and to leave the ground and go for the chains. You have to have kind of a killer instinct to just blast up there into the unknown that working around bolt to bolt never teaches. Mm. Uh, yeah, you need to try hard on your red point of the route that you're projecting. You know, yeah, so you're still trying hard, but it's a different kind of try hard when you're on sighting and you don't know what the next move is or what the next hold is. Obviously, is a very mental process because yes. you need to be dealing with the uncertainty the whole way up the route. Whereas when you project a route, there's no uncertainty except the outcome. You, you know everything else, the holds, the clips, the rests. There's just everything else is known. So there's a real sense of comfort that develops when you project a route. But on sighting, there's a real sense of discomfort and you learn to deal with discomfort and thrive despite discomfort. And so the, the, the best climbers out there at on sighting, some of the pros, like you know, someone like an Alex Honnold who can just drop his rope at the base of almost anything reasonable and just walk it like he knows the route when he doesn't, that shows real mastery. And so projecting routes enables you to send higher numbers, but on sighting routes, I think is actually the food of mastery. I oh, love this. The title of this is The Road to 13A, but but this this gold here at the end about talking about that that onsite of 12A, I'm just as psyched about and I also think will serve my climbing just as much as hitting that high red point and and may ultimately be just as proud of ascend. Yeah, it's and I think in climbing there are so many ways to get better and well, this is one that's kind of overlooked, you know, as if you're a project climber, you can actually get better by on-sighting. There's this feedback effect because it makes you a smarter climber, a more intuitive climber, you get better at problem solving, and that feeds back into making you better at projecting and sending stuff more quickly. And, and people who only on-site can benefit from projecting where they learn to really get on a rope and fall and try hard. I've had people who are mainly crack climbers that have dabbled in sport climbing for a season or two and through sport climbing then circled back to their crack climbing and taken it to a completely new level because sure. they learned in sport climbing to take falls and how to work routes, you know, how to try hard, how to climb pumped. And then knowing that feeling and that they can persevere through that feeling in the very safe environment of bolt clipping they take it back and reapply it to crack climbing. And all of a sudden their crack climbing has gone to the next level. Absolutely. And well, there's a lot of reason there for climbers as you become experienced, as you're into climbing five years and then 10 years and then 15 years, don't be afraid to diversify and do some other things. You know, go to other areas, try other types of climbing. All of it might seem like it's taking you away from your main goal, but it will actually feed back and make you better and enable you to go next level at your main goal. And uh, I guess with that, maybe our coach her should put a gag on. <laughs> no, it's a it's a full mic drop. The the professor is in the building. Uh, thank you, Eric. This has just been, first of all, a real treat for me to to have you spend this amount of time just talking with me about my goals and helping me to achieve them. I really appreciate that support. I've appreciated it you know, with, with your belay when I hit that 12B just recently, but also through the journey of Jesus Wept, 
celebrating the send at Miguel's with a beer, and now identifying this road to 13A and a 12A on-site. I'm going to try hard. I'm going to train hard. I will be in touch with you on it. And then let's uh, let's circle back and chat again in the fall, whether it's as I'm preparing to, to, to give goes, or maybe it'll be post-fall season and we'll look back at what worked, what didn't, where I had struggles and, and kind of what the outcome was as a result. Right. Well, let the work begin. Indeed. All right, my friend. <laughs> I'll keep you posted. And that wraps up this master coaching session with the GOAT coach himself, Eric Hurst. Y'all, I'd love to hear what you thought of this one. I learned so, so much. And I hope there were some big takeaways for you in your own climbing, whether your goals are at the gym or at the crag, whatever level you're climbing at. And if you want to hear more from the professor, I recommend listening to his entire catalog of Training for Climbing podcasts. They're so well-researched and presented. And you can also pop over to trainingforclimbing.com to dig into Eric's library of posts, his training videos, and of course, his awesome books. And I'm not sure how much one-to-one coaching he's doing these days, but you might get lucky and score yourself a consult if that interests you. His contact info is over on his website. And of course, you can find him on IG as well, at Eric underscore Hurst. Now, my big takeaways here were everything because this episode was all about me. So how fortunate am I to have had that awesome coaching session? You guys can check me out on IG at The Struggle Climbing Show for updates on the proj that I choose, my spring and summer training, and all the struggles that will surely come along the way. Uh, hopefully some big breakthroughs as well. I'm going to keep you all posted and I would love your feedback. If you're on this journey or a similar journey or whatever your journey is, just hit me up. Let me know what you're going for. We're all in this together. I am especially psyched also to put some intentionality into that flash goal. For me, it's a 12A. For you, it could be anything that you feel is the right grade to flash. There's just something about those high stakes moments of only having one shot ever to flash a particular route. It's, it's such a cool mental and physical challenge. And then of course, for the big goal, 13A is not gonna be easy for me, y'all. But if it was, it wouldn't be a limit proj. And whatever your limit proj is, I hope you're psyched to put in the work, time and effort, my friends. That is the not so secret secret. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Ryan Devlin. We are a proud member of the Plug Tone Audio Collective and the show is carbon neutral in partnership with the Honnold Foundation. The struggle makes us stronger. Let's get after it. <laughs>